this is Mark Brown for Beyond the Room at the very, very closing moments of the Institute for Mental Health and Centre for Human Brain Health launch event at the University of Birmingham. I'm here with Sylvain Bayer. Um, Sylvain's just given a very, very detailed, very, very interesting talk. But I know that a lot of people listening to this will be a kind of lay audience. Um, his talk was, to summarise it, something about brains. So what I want to ask him is, what is it, what's the implication of the work you've been doing for the wider question of how we have good mental health? So I think for now my work is relatively basic, quite fundamental. We are looking into basically the mechanisms or the possible mechanisms that would explain complex behaviour or complex syndromes or symptoms uh, that we meet uh, very often in mental illness, right? So um, when I say complex, it's not in a negative way. It's uh, the fact that basically we are able to produce complex behavior, be it, you know, speaking into a microphone or social interchanges, you know, movements, uh, learning new skills, etc., but that's also true. The, I mean, the the the, uh, the opposite view of that, or the counterpart, is that when uh, you know the brain uh, is uh, afflicted by disease, neurological or uh, mental illness, then the expression of the symptoms are often very complex as well and very hard to actually um, identify or even quantify. So what I'm what we are trying to do in the team is to look into the intimacy of. The, mechanis- the possible mechanisms of information integration by brain networks, so sensory information from the environment into something that is meaningful, meaningful to us as self. And that has implication on the, uh, the view of the self as a unified, uh, if you will, entity. And some psychiatrists and some folks in mental health research or even healthcare view, you know, a lot of mental health syndromes and, and, and illnesses as manifestations of um, disconnectivity or ill connectivity with, uh, with yourself or with others or sometimes both. So it's a little bit of metaphorical at this point, but we try to reconcile what people uh, see in the clinic, what patients experience themselves and report, and what we see in the data, meaning in the very cold data from brain scanners, from behavioral you know, uh, measurements as well. So kind of what I took away from your talk was that at least part of this is about seeing the function of the brain from the brain in real time. Is, is that about right? Yeah. So you kind of talked about this not being new, but it felt to an extent new. So what, what's new about that? So that's a great uh, point indeed. I mean, uh, what I try to emphasize in my talk is the, the, the idea that, one, we need to use techniques, possibly imaging techniques, that have the temporal resolution, meaning the ability to discriminate moment to moment the activity of the brain at a time scale that is compatible with, again, behavior. So complex movements, complex, uh, you know, articulation of speech, uh, social interactions, etc., so, again, my number one point was to advocate for the fact that we need to look at the brain at its natural speed, so to speak. So, 
that narrows down the set of techniques that are available to those who are basically based on electrophysiology, which is the uh, how we can measure the communication and activity of ele uh, electrochemicals exchanges in the brain by neurons. And number two, I was also trying to advocate through this, uh, I mean, equipped with these tools, um, in favor of using more naturalistic um, experimental conditions because the brain actually is wired and actually learns and lives uh, through development and through aging as well, you know, in a, by definition, a very naturalistic environment that is poorly controlled. So uh, uncertainty, surprise is part of our moment-to-moment uh, -moment experience as, 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 a, as, a, as a self. So... Um, even though you know highly controlled conditions in laboratories for perception, etc., are necessary, what we are advocating is, and we are not the only ones, is to look actually uh, whether we can uh, decipher from the complex brain signals we pick up with the techniques I was talking about, some structure, some signal that is a reflection somehow of the external world, but also how the brain processes this information to create knowledge or to adapt its behavior, basically. So you, you, you can have the problem that the fMRI scanners are a bit big to wear as you go around your everyday life. If you could get one that you could just put on like a hat, a lot of your work would be a lot easier and wouldn't need to do a lot of the other stuff because you were talking about the need to use machine learning to create models, in essence, so you could kind of judge things against them. Is that right? So it's true, one of the things we've done recently is to look into artificial neural networks and how they basically process naturalistic stimuli and information uh, and uh, with an emphasis on the importance of context, right? Uh, when we talk together and when I look around me, I have a certain representation in my head, or in my mind, of what's going to happen next, uh, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so we call those things internal models, internal representations that we learn through development and through life experiences. And um, so it, they are very difficult to capture because they are, uh, and to measure scientifically, because they are so intimate to everyone. But again, as often in science, we are trying to look at, on average, in a certain category of population, let's say by age, by gender, by um, education level, maybe by clinical condition, we are trying to look at expressions or differential expressions of these internal models. So for now, we are looking essentially at you know, the development of a method based on artificial neural networks as proxies of you know, how these internal models are expressed in the brain. So we've been training artificial neural networks that we borrowed from basically AI research for natural speech processing. Uh, we've trained them on a very large corpus of TED Talks which are not, you know, purely naturalistic conversations, but it's, it's again, a proxy of, uh, you know, what we can find out there. Um, and uh, so we've been looking into this corpus of 10,500 TED Talks, um, sorry, 1,500 TED Talks, equivalent of 10,000 words, etc., even more. And we've trained these uh, networks for hours and hours. And eventually what we obtained is uh, basically the signature of uncertainty and surprise when uh, we play any, you know, uh, uh, not random, but any, uh, manifest any new bits of speech and naturalistic speech to the network. So we obtained basically the prediction of the network word by word or phoneme by phoneme 
as the new um, you know, input stream, audio stream is presented to the network. And we use this data, basically this transformation of the audio data into contextual representations to look into uh, real human brains, um, biological traces basically, and we try to see how much of the signals these variables account for in the brain activity. And if they account for a significant portion of the fluctuations in brain activity while somebody is listening to speech again, spoken words and spoken language, then it means that the brain uh, allocates some resources to actually predict constantly what's going to be said. Mm -hmm. And um, at different scales, again, the, the scale of a word, but also the scale of a phoneme for decoding and understanding. So this research belongs to the realm of, you know, seeing the brain as a predictive machine that uh, constantly constructs and builds uh, representations of its environment and learn from, from experience and also uh, through behavior can act on the environment so that it meets certain goals. So, so as, as I was live tweeting your, your talk this afternoon, I got quite a salty comment from a Twitter follower um, that said, um, phrenology for the 21st century, basically that you're kind of reading the lumps of the brain rather than conveying anything useful. Was that a bit, was, was that a bit rude or...? I think it's a bit rude, uh, but that's fair game, you know. Um, it's important to be skeptical in science, of course. Um, but I don't think, I mean, it, it's a form of phrenology, of course, because we're looking at the mind through the, the lens of, you know, uh, techniques and methods that have their limitations. But what I think we've been doing, and we as a community, I'm not talking just about my lab, is to actually get closer to the possible mechanisms, to the biology, to the mechanistic workings of, uh, of the brain, rather than just mapping things, you know, coloring uh, MRI images with nice orange-looking blobs. This has some value and it's important, but uh, it's very static. It's very, uh, you know, uh, it's a moment in time, so to speak, or an average in time. And we don't see, we are disconnected from the very dynamics of the brain. Which, which is a very strong portion of how the brain actually processes information, right? So, so kind of how things get from one bit of the brain to the other and what the relationship is in that travel, is that kind yeah. of what you're talking about? Right, so we are looking now at a different form of mapping maybe, which is more the association of uh, the contributions from different brain areas together. So we've been looking at networks rather than just blobs that are isolated from each other as if each blob was implementing a certain function. So this view is now from the past, and it was indeed, again, it's been very useful and still useful for many questions, but uh, indeed it has this limit, some limitations. And so what we are advocating for and what the new center here is going to develop in Birmingham is this ability to look into brain functions and dysfunctions in their real time, in their actually ecological uh, existence, so to speak, um, natural existence. And that's very exciting. So you're kind of looking at being able to see in real time how something differs from something else. It's not necessarily um, like that. We can still use these techniques uh, by, you know, uh, looking at differences and contrast between a certain condition A and condition B or between patients and healthy mm -hmm. controls, and it has some value. But actually what I was trying to show also is that we can look at basically um, features in uh, 
the, the basically perception, but also in the mental construction from these internal models from the brain that basically forge our representation of the world as we know it or as we think we know it. Um, so we are looking at these contributions in the real time of the brain signals. We don't need to look at contrast between A and B or population A and population B. We are looking at fluctuations of certain of these uh, mechanistic expressions with certain features that are meaningful to us. Again, uh, when we look at language, we want to see, okay, what are the brain regions that respond more when they, there is surprising components in the in what is expressed with the language. That's just an example. So the, kind of, the, the really interesting thing for me is you kicked off your, 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 your talk with a kind of contrast between knowing and, and healing. Yeah. So just to put you on the spot to finish off, which category do you feel this work is most in at the moment? Is it knowing or healing? So as you noticed probably at the end of my first slide, I was advocating for the reconciliation between healing and knowing, and I was trying to forge this... Uh, you know, um, neologism of, uh, what was it, neuropsychiatrologist, yes. um, which would both know what he's doing or she's doing in the sense that it would be a person that has a scientific approach to, let's say, for instance, mental illness, but with the objective of healing uh, the mind as well. Um, uh, so, of course, I know, uh, you know, everyone involved in this endeavor is, uh, you know, uh, wants to achieve the same objective. But historically, as, as you, you know, your listeners probably know better, uh, there's been this divide uh, in how we approach this very complex problem. And I think with this institute here in Birmingham, coupled with the Center for Human Brain Health, there is this, you know, affirmative... Um, uh, action, so to speak, to bring together, you know, um, scientists, medical doctors, um, healthy controls, patients under the same roof, pretty much, and contribute to actually uh, reconcile the views and uh, the objectives. And I think this is very exciting times for 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 our field, but also for maybe the clinic, uh, the clinical practice of tomorrow for for mental illness. So a strong vote there for knowing and healing all together. Thank you for that. That was great. Mm -hmm.